My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Cthulhu Wars. And this is Asan Lopez, and I'm not playing Trajan. And this is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing U-Boot. Oh, do you, do, is U-Boot in retail stores, Mike? It is. I just heard it's not very good. Oh, snap. Yeah, but it's got a little 3D model of a submarine. I know. That's that's the thing that looked really cool to me. And then I was reading in our uh, thread on quarter to three, and it was a lot of negative reactions. Yeah, but as long as you get that little cutaway model of the sub, it doesn't matter if the game is good. It's like a $100 cutout, though. Yeah. Oh, and it's, it's <laughs> app-based, too. You have to run a real-time app as well. Oh, uh, and I saw they're making, like, a video game-only version of it, so that gets me to the question of why is it a board game, but... Right, right, exactly. Uh, it's for people who uh, think Captain Sonar is too messy and too crazy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Hassan, why aren't you playing Trajan? And how do you even say that word? I, what, Trajan? Trajan? <laughs> well, I, I chose it because it has the bad, mechanical links to the game that I am going to talk about today, but it's I, I, I would prefer to play the one I'm going to be talking about. Does Trajan, does it have a mancala? Because I can't. That's the thing that I can't stand in Trajan. It does. All right. Well, Hassan, why don't you start us off? Tell us what what is this horrible game where you have to mess around with a mancala before you can get to the actual game? <laughs> you bet. You bet. So, uh, in our last episode, I was talking about a bunch of the stuff I got to play at Origins this year, but I didn't mention the two games that I bought and brought home. And so I'm going to probably be bringing them up in the well, this episode and then the next one. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones I, I, I quite liked was called Crusaders Thy Will Be Done. And this is a game published by Tasty Minstrel, the designer's Seth Jaffe. And, um, you know, it's a, it's another game with a deceptive theme. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, look at the board. It's a beautiful map of Europe and it's got hexes on it. And so you immediately start thinking that it's going to be about conquering Saracens and taking over territory and being um, directly interacting with your opponents. It's even got colorful wooden knights. Um, but your, your first clue that something's awry is that the Holy Land isn't even on the map. So it's just like it's just like the Eastern Mediterranean just isn't even on there. And that'll make you be like, what's, what's going on here? And so don't be fooled into thinking it's any kind of war game or some sort of historical simulation. It's a very, um, it's a very good light, medium weight Euro about taking pleasure in planning and efficiency like like a lot of euros that's not so, what that's not what crusades are about i know i know <laughs> and 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 to be frank I, that that right there could potentially turn people off because the the theme is intriguing um and i'm not sure if there is actually a good board game based on the crusades so it, it might be a theme that requires further delving into but this is this is not a thematic game this is okay, a game well, if i've got a bunch, mechanics if i've got a bunch of knights and there's no do, do they just go off board to have a crusade or what am i doing with my knights if i'm not sending them off to conquer a holy land well they're they're spreading influence throughout europe and into you know western asia so that kind of counts as crusades but yeah don't don't assume that you're going to be going into the holy land so are you basically playing a territory control game against other players then not not really, no. Um, and it, that's going to get to probably the biggest flaw in the design, something that's going to really piss you off, Tom, I know. But I'll, I'll, I'll hold on to that. I'll okay. Hold on to it. <laughs> well, tell me things that would make me want to play it then first. Right. Well, the, the biggest talking point about the game is is actually a, a, its central mechanic. You know, whereas normally you would best 
be best served introducing a game to people by discussing its theme, and that might, in fact, be the hook that got you to buy it. Crusader's big talking point is its central mechanism, which is a combination of Rondell and Mancala. So, I'll just, oh. yeah, I know. <laughs> Two <laughs> so things gonna, I hate the most. Yeah, oh. so, so I'm going to quickly explain those, and then we can chat about it. But a, a Rondell is a, is a wheel-shaped mechanism in games where a, a player's choice of actions is going to be limited by their ability to move around the rondelle. Uh, generally speaking, this is going to restrict your ability to just take the same action over and over again. It's a it's a, a, a an artificial way of forcing a dis, you know forcing you into a particular decision space. Right. Um, a Mancala mechanism is one obviously based upon the old board game Mancala, in which your turn is going to consist of gathering a number of game pieces from a particular location, like a pit in the classical game, and then distributing them or sewing them one at a time in a prescribed pattern, like clockwise, for example. And so just just from that description, um, you can maybe start to envision how a rondelle and Moncala might well work together. Like they could be like a peanut butter and chocolate thing. And that, that's why I brought up Trajan, because Trajan was the the first game that combined those two mechanisms together. Um, and in in the instructions to Crusaders, Seth Jaffe writes a little designer note. And those those are often fun to read. I wish yeah. I wish more designers did those. But he he basically says he came up with the idea of the game um, after hearing about Trajan, Stefan Feld's Trajan, guessing how it might work, then playing it and discovering it, it didn't work like he thought it was going to. <laughs> and, and so he ended up designing a game based around his his own idea. So this is very much a design that started from a mechanic, not from a theme. And okay. you can you can feel that throughout the entire design. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, guys have a, a favorite Rondell or Mancala game? So, Tom, you've already sort of given away that you don't like this particular mechanic in games. Part, part of it, too, is I just... Uh... I, I can't think, and I probably just, I don't know enough Stefan Feld games, but I can't think of a Rondell game where I, I don't mind the Rondell, because a Rondell is basically a way of slapping the player's wrist and saying, ah, 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 you can't do that. Uh, and it, it just it, it just feels, for, for the most part, you know what, there's a Rondell in Hong Kong Blackout that I kind of like. It determines what goods you get, and if you spend gasoline or travel, you can then move farther around the rondelle. So it represents this idea of if you have gasoline, you have more flexibility. So I kind of like the rondelle in that. And the Mancala dynamic, because I don't even think of this as a Mancala so much as cycling fuel through an engine. There's kind of a Mancala with the idea of mana in the Terra Mystica game. Right. Uh, and I, so that would be my choice of the least offensive Mancala, and the least offensive rondelle would be the the... Uh, scrounging for goods in Hong Kong blackout. Mike, what's a what's a non-terrible Rondell and Mancala for you? I actually can't think of any that I've played right? recently that have these mechanics. Oh. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with you know Mancala, the classic game, of course. When I'm looking on Board Game Geek here through everything that has Rondell mechanics, and I haven't really played very many of these. You're not missing out on anything. No, <laughs> I mean I, I'm familiar with the mechanic, but I don't I haven't played any of these board games that kind of feature it. And I, I'm just I'm just sort of intentionally being contrarian here because there's there, I'm sure there are great examples of this. Uh, I recently picked up a dungeon crawler called Perdition's Mouth, which looked really cool because instead of rolling dice or flipping cards or whatever, you your heroes would each move around a rondelle and that would determine what they can do on any given turn. 
Hmm. But it just felt super convoluted and arbitrary that, wait, so my guy can't move this turn because first he's got to attack, but there's no one for him to attack unless he can move first. It just felt super uh, just awkward. Um, it's so, a, it's a, mm-hmm. It feels like a very artificial limitation on, on player choice. Right. right. And I, and mm-hmm. I think that that will, yeah, that will immediately turn off some players, um, especially if they're looking for any kind of thematic connection with that mechanic. And I, I, I think you just need to dissociate yourself entirely from that desire and just be like, okay, I'm going to just view this as as the designers attempt to get me to think in a different way and to solve this problem in a in a different way. Right, right. And 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 you're saying you feel it works well with Crusaders. I really do. And and I think the reason why I would recommend it to people, if if they're maybe even looking to have their first experience with a Rondell or a Mancala mechanic, is that it's it's a very quick game to learn and it, it, it plays so smoothly and easily um this is one of those games much like um you know some of the games i've been discussing recently on the podcast that falls into that light middleweight category that i'm i'm really in, digging nowadays where the turns go by really quickly um, there's just enough thinking to be satisfying without bogging the game down in analysis paralysis um, you can finish a three, four player game in about an hour. Or so I, I think it's one of those games that you can, it can be the centerpiece of the evening. Um, and if it was, you'd play it twice, which is is what we did. Or it could be something that you start the game with before you go on to something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms so, of, yeah, go ahead, Tom. Well, so so then tell us what does the rondelle and Mancala do here? I'm assuming the rondelle just limits what actions you can take on your turn. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So the the broad goal of the game is to garner the most influence, which is just a synonym for victory points. But you're you're trying to spread influence throughout Europe. Um, each player takes on a different knight's order, um, and you're competing to have the most in, influence by the end of the game. The the actions which you can take, which which make up the wedges of your rondelle. Um, are, are very simple. Um, again, they're really quick to explain and easy to understand. So one of the actions is just to garner influence. And so when you take that action, you're just going to basically be getting victory points. Now, the, the, the trick with the Moncala mechanism here is that when you take an action by selecting you know, one of the, the wedges in your, in your little circle, um, the strength of the action is determined by how many tokens you have there. So if I took the influence action and I had three tokens there, hey, I would get three victory points. But if I had five tokens there, I'd get five victory points. Mm-hmm. And then after you take the action, you do the Mancala thing and you distribute those tokens one at a time right around your, your rondelle. And so what you're trying to do, obviously, is you're trying to set up future turns which are going to be more powerful and more impactful. You You do have... Um, a, a strategy that you're trying to fill, and usually it's you know one to three turns in the future. Um, right. Another of the actions is travel, so that's how you're going to move your knights. You have a, a you start with a one knight token in Western Europe, and you can gain more of those tokens as the game goes on as you unlock certain things. But you're going to be moving that knight basically east, moving into different territories, these hexes, and you're you're trying to get to particular locations so that you can 
and you can crusade. So uh, another of the actions is to crusade. And when you enter into a hex that has enemies in it, or you can think of them as people you're trying to kill or you're trying to convert, I, whatever you want to think of. But there, there's Prussians, Slavs, and Saracens. And if you take the crusade action, it's basically a very simple um, attack. They have a defense value, and then your attack is largely determined by how many tokens you had in, in your wedge at that time, mm -hmm. right? Um, you can muster, which increases the strength of your armies, and you can build. And building is a lot of fun. That's where the engine building in the game comes from. Um, if you have conquered a, a hex and you've cleared it of these enemies, um, most hexes on the map have a space where you can build a, a single building. And once a player builds a building there, nobody else can build there. So you are blocking it. That's a, a limited form of player interaction in the game. Mm -hmm. But you can build, um, for example, structures like churches, which give you more influence whenever you take the influence action, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can build farms which will increase your ability to muster. So basically you're going to be building structures that enhance these basic um, actions that you have at your disposal. Now, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the board here, uh, and actually I'm getting why it's called Crusades, because you're not fighting each other. You're right. all sort of uh, different factions garnering influence or whatever by fighting another uh, pagan enemy, I guess, or, or right. heathens, right? Um, it looks like, like, why doesn't England get totally screwed by being at the far end of the map and across uh, water? And, and what these little, this little purple guy down here in Spain, isn't he at a huge disadvantage because everybody <laughs> else is closer to Eastern Europe over there? Yeah, the, in terms of actually starting locations, there there are prescribed starting locations that are balanced. So you can't actually start in England. Nobody starts in England. But um, w once you once you have your starting position, which I, there's a, there's certain rules for determining who gets first choice of starting position, and then that de also determines who gets the first turn in the game. Okay. Um, but you you can choose to ignore England entirely. One of the games I played, I actually sent, I, I, I had a faction that started with an extra knight, the Black Knight, and I sent the Black Knight into England right away, and he built some churches for me in England, and that was pretty cool. And then he hung out in England the rest of the game and didn't do much for me, right? It, um, it does look, I might be guessing, but it does look like the Irish need some crusading done against them. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, that's really it. I mean, what I've described to you guys is the basic structure of the game, and the, the satisfaction of the game is absolutely in um, timing your actions and, and, and building your rondel so that it fires off very efficiently, right? right? Because And you'll know immediately. You get immediate feedback in this game whether you just took an action where, oh, I didn't need to have four travel, I only needed three. Well, that means that that one token that you right. had in there was kind of wasted, yeah. right? You didn't optimize, and, right? Suboptimal movement, optimize. yeah. Exactly, so that that's the joy of the game. And if that sounds totally boring and tedious and not enough for you, then I get it, right? But um, but it plays super fast, it's super, um, it's super easy to learn. I'll give you two more things, um, and again, these are the things, Tom, that one of them I think you'll like, and the other you're going to hate. Okay. So, which do you want first? You give want, me the one uh, that I'll hate. So far, I'm, I'm. Give me the one I'll hate. What's the? Yeah. What's something terrible? Very limited player interaction, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay. you're not. You're not. Re this is very much, I think, a, a heads down solitaire game. The, the player interaction really comes from 
getting to particular hexes on the map that you think another player might be going for, right? So in one of our games, I'll just use this as an example, Dave, uh, one of my buddy Dave, was was really going heavy with what I would call maybe a Saracen strategy. Like he was just building his army very quickly and trying to convert as many Saracens as he could. And you can really rack up a ton of points for doing that. And at the end of the game, you get an end game bonus if you've converted the most of one of those three categories, right? The right. Prussian Slavs or Saracens. And so once we saw that he was doing that, um, it, it would behoove us to try to block that. So we started really saying, okay, let's stop Dave from getting this Saracen. Let's see if we can get there first. So there is that kind of player interaction, but otherwise you're kind of heads down doing your own thing. Right. But but I do like, though, it, unlike a lot of those kind of heads down multiplayer solitaire where you've each got your tableau, it does look like you're all, like the, the map looks intimate enough that it looks like what I do is going to, what you do, Hassan, and what you do, Mike, is going to matter a lot to what I can do. Right. Uh, like, there's just not that much room on the map. One of my issues with a game you've talked about before, which I really like, Hassan, uh, Rise of the Necromancers, is I feel like there's too much room for the number of players. So you, you can you can play around each other pretty easily. That Just from looking at the map of Crusaders, it looks like that's not really an option here. That's true. And and I think they, they designed the map very well for player counts. Like, on one side of the board, there's a two-player map, and then the ah, other side, there's three and four. Nice. And yeah, especially if you play four players on the four player side, it's tight. Yeah, right, it definitely right, is. Right. And that also makes the game go faster, really. This is a game that just has a great pace to it, I think. Right. All is right, well, what's to, Is there a way to dislodge other players from them, like once they claim a territory or that's theirs forever? There, there's not. And, you know, that, that would be, I think, I mean, that's a great question, Mike, because I think that would be your first, um, you know, way of. of creating sort of more direct player competition in the game as if you built a church in Hungary and then I was able to go in and burn it somehow. Right. 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 That's, uh, but, so I, I was just wondering from looking at the map, if that could, you can cut off players from being able to expand into an area, you know, like kind of drawing a line across the hexes. No, you can't. It, it, even, even for example, my building in a particular territory doesn't limit your capacity to move through that territory. Okay. Right. So, okay. So he clearly designed this game to be very low on player interaction and very friendly to, hey, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? I'm, I'm not going to limit you, except that the rondelle is going to limit you, right? Gotcha. Okay. All right, so what's something I would love about this then? Um, asymmetric player powers. So oh, I, I, you know what? I'm sold. Go ahead. Because yeah, you mentioned having a Black Knight, and I was like, wait a minute. Does everyone right. get a Black Knight? Right. Yeah. So for a game that's, you know, very Euro at its core and is very much an efficiency optimization game, it's it's really nice that it comes with these different factions. So at, at the beginning of the game, you each take a different order of knights, um, including, for example, the Knights Templar, and they each have a very specific special power. Um, a lot of the powers do have affect how you can interact with the rondelle. So just as an example, one of the uh, the orders I, I played allowed me to distribute my tokens either clockwise or counterclockwise. Ooh, right. So it gives you it gives you a different way of, of playing the game. Okay. And and when I was looking through the stack of them, they they all seemed interesting and, and cool to me. Like I immediately was like, oh I want to try that and see how it changes this otherwise very simple structure. Right, right, right. right. All right, uh, Crusaders, they, they will be done. I mean, now, you know what, what issue this game is going to have in about uh, three weeks, Hassan? <laughs> okay. 
uh, uh, Paradox is about to release a Crusader Kings board oh, game. Right. Right. Which I'm sure is going to be a very different design, but I've mentally <laughs> been conflating them for for a while because I've heard of Crusaders that will be done, and I knew there was a Crusaders King game coming, and they kind of overlapped in my mind. So they're going to be very different in weight, is my guess. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Right. And but, in the Crusader Kings board game, we'll have about a hundred pieces of DLC. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, when you said that, Mike, I was like, wow, really? I, I, I totally believe that. That made sense, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of hundreds of pieces of DLC available for board games, what are you playing, Mike? So I played just last night for the first time uh, Star Wars Outer Rim. A fantasy flight uh, game. Interesting. Is, All right. Which is, which is the polar opposite of Hassan's game, and that is about as American as it can be. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but it's a Star Wars-themed um, adventure game, uh, maybe you call it like pick-up-and-delivery game, uh, where you play a smuggler, like Han Solo or Lando or uh, or you know even uh, some of the like Bosk and the Bounty Hunters, too, uh, exploring the rim of the Star Wars universe, uh, picking up contracts, um, you are delivering uh, cargo, you're collecting bounties, uh, and it's got this cool board that looks like kind of a half-circle uh, that's modular. Um, they recommend setting it up in kind of the default way where all the planets really are in the Star Wars lore, but you can kind of mix and match. I like the idea of a, of a default way where all the planets really are. <laughs> yeah, right. Really are according to lore. Right. <laughs> so, so it's a canonical uh, Star Wars map, right? Yes. None of this apocryphal Star Wars map nonsense. This is the yep. historical one, right? <laughs> so you start out, um, you pick your pilot. Um, so I, I ended up with Han Solo. Um, you end up rolling some dice and you kind of draft which pilot you want in order. Um, and each pilot has their own personal goal. Um, and as you are playing the game, the instead of victory points, they call it fame. So you're trying to become the most famous uh, bounty hunter, smuggler, or whatever. Uh, and you accrue that through just doing different things. So it might be robbing a bank or just turning in a lot of bounties or delivering or smuggling illegal cargo. Uh, and over the course of the game, you're, you're accruing these points. Um, you go to different planets. You can get more gear for your ship or for your person. Um, you can pick up crew members. Um, you can interact with various people you find. So on the board, each planet has two tokens that are face down. They're hidden. Uh, there's three different colors. There's uh, white, yellow, and green. Uh, and then when you go to a planet, you can say, I'm going to flip over this white token. And it's got a picture of someone from Star Wars movies or lore uh, with a number. And then it's got a deck of cards, kind of like a lot of legacy games have, where it says, you know, go grab card 27. And for... Uh, as an example, I ran to uh, Princess Leia, and when I went to her card, she offered me a job to, you know, go rescue some rebels, uh, and then that became a job that I could take and then earn rewards for, and so on. Uh, one of the cool things they did in the game also is there's uh, you track your reputation with four factions uh, between uh, the Rebellion, Empire, the Huts, and the Syndicate, and it's on the side of your player board. There's uh, you can have negative, neutral, or positive reputation. And that will affect a lot of cards. It'll say, if you have a positive rebel reputation, you have this choice. And it kind of gets a little story-ish. You know, you can do this if you want, roll this, uh, and so on. Um, And then there's also these patrols that go around the board. Um, There's four of them, one for each of the factions. And if you're on good terms with that faction, you can run right by them, no problem. If you have a negative reputation, you have to fight them. Um, And then, let's see what else. The bounty system... Uh, you'll get this card where it'll say, I'm looking for Chewbacca. Uh, and it'll show that his little picture has a yellow uh, border. 
So that means I need to go around the galaxy looking for all the contacts uh, that have a yellow chit. So I can flip over and kind of, you know, I have a, a focused uh, search. And then once I find them, I do a little fight with whoever I have a bounty on. Uh, you can choose to kill them outright or deliver them somewhere else, uh, which uh, delivering them earns you more money. Um, that is kind of like the overview. Um, what, I, I, what I really liked was that each character you can pick uh, has a goal. So, for example, Han Solo had his goal of uh, buy a ship that is worth 15,000 credits and, uh, I think, deliver one illegal cargo. And once you do that, the card flips over, you earn a fame point, and then you get a new ability for the rest of the game. Uh, in addition to that, there's uh, you start out with kind of a junker ship, either a fighter or a cargo ship. And you can get, you know, the Millennium Falcon or Slave One or all these kind of famous Star Wars ships. But when you get them, they're kind of in their generic form to start with. Uh, so the uh, I ended up getting the Millennium Falcon, and it was, you know, the YT-1300, whatever it is. Right. Uh, but after I completed missions, it turned into the actual named Millennium Falcon and had better stats and, you know, had additional ability and so on. Cool. So, yeah, it's it's neat that you you kind of have these, both your ship and your guy have this goal, which earn you fame and kind of are thematic uh, with what you're doing. Um, you also run into cards, which says, if you are Han Solo, you have this choice. Otherwise, everyone else does this. So, you know, running into Chewbacca has a special case for, for Han Solo, for example. Um as far as what I, I, I'm a little worried about this game is, so you spread out all these contacts across the board and you see most of them through the game. But now that I've played once, I know what a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I think already out of the gate, it's in need of a little more um, just kind of numbers of cards and numbers of people you can run into because for the most part, each individual character has a specific scenario you're going to run into. So as soon as I see Greedo pop up, I know, oh, I, if I run into him, I'm going to have to do this kind of check, and I might earn this. It, it, I, w- I would describe it as super content anemic uh, yeah. in that regard, but also there are... Mike, have you played the, the Firefly uh, board game? I, ha- I have not, but I've heard this compared to it quite a bit. Yeah, this is basically like my baby's first Firefly. This is definitely a streamlined version of the Firefly design, and I really like Firefly for various reasons, but as a heavily thematic, intricate pick-up-and-deliver game, I, I didn't know... I've never seen Serenity, the, the TV show, but I feel like I know that universe really well after having played Firefly a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really lively representation of Joss Whedon's universe. Uh, and the, the gameplay dynamics, it's just... There, there's a lot there to, to, to play with. And this really feels like Firefly, but just... A lot of stuff cut out, a lot of stuff streamlined so that it plays in, you know, a third of the time with a quarter of the interesting things happening and maybe even less player interaction. Uh, So I I play this and I'm constantly mentally comparing it to Firefly. Like, oh, Firefly does this this way, whereas Outer Rim does it that way. And I kind of feel like the way that Firefly does most of these things is is better. And one of, one of the ways that I feel like Firefly really gets it right is with the, the number of cards and the amount of encounters and stuff. And so you mentioned there are the contacts that are face down, and these are just like Star mm-hmm. Wars characters in the universe, and you mm-hmm. run into them, and you mention you, you look them up, they call it the data bank, and it's this numbered set of cards, and Princess Leia is like the 17. So you go through, and you look at the 17, and you flip it over. And once you've played once, and it's even, it's even super coy about, hey, if Princess Leia is out, 
because she then flips face up and then she's sitting there at Tatooine or wherever for the rest of the game until someone interacts with her. You're supposed to put card 17 face up and people can look at it. People can always refer to card 17. So all this gameplay for what the pieces do, how they work, how you interact with them, uh, is buried in this numbered deck of cards mm-hmm. uh, that I feel that kind of works. They, they did this in Fallout where there's just a huge, crazy number of cards that relate to each other, and sometime, sometimes card 41 will take you to card 48, but sometimes it'll take you to card 298. It feels like you're navigating uh, almost a choose-your-own-adventure book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't feel it in um, Outer Rim, it feels like these numbers are simply things that would have been printed on a card if this had been a game that had cards laid out like there's no reason it needs to be in a deck of hidden face down numbered cards this is a basic gameplay mechanic what princess leia does is going to always be consistent across every single game that card 17 that represents princess leia they're being super coy putting it in this quote data bank and making you fish it out and look it up because princess leia is never going to change she's always going to do what card 17 does and once you've played the game once you might as well just leave that face out and say, okay, when you run into Princess Leia, she'll do this. Uh, the little Imperial spy guy does that. Chewbacca does this. Uh, so their whole thing with the data bank just feels really weird. And also, like, it jumps from number 40 to number 90. So they have <laughs> those, clear... those 90s are, are, are uh, for setup cards. Those are well, like... well, there's also another jump, too, between, I think, like 15. But th- it's clearly they're leaving room in there for for printing more add-ons, for, yep. for, for selling more content. And, and they need to because there's there's not a lot. You play this game once or twice, and you've, you've seen a lot of what it has to offer. There are there are also face-down decks or cards. And there's a deck, and the top card is always face-up, and that's your marketplace. Yep, and you can exactly, and I like that mm-hmm. because each of the decks is something different. There's a deck for gear, there's a deck for bounties, there's a deck for cargo runs, uh, there's a deck for uh, different ships that you can buy. Um, mm-hmm. And the the fact that one is face up every turn, you know what's available. And when you go to buy one, the first thing you can do before you buy one of them is you can decide, okay, I don't like what's on that deck. I'm going to bury it and flip up another card to give myself another option or to keep one of you guys from buying a card I know you want. And then after I burn one of them, I can then, if I want, buy a card. Um, The cargo deck, and one of the ways you would play a game like this, whether it's Firefly or there's a game called Zia, uh, Tale of a Sun, or I forget what it's called, but these these space pickup and delivers, uh, you can do cargo runs by just picking up cargo taking it where it needs to go and dropping it off. There are literally, I think, like eight of these in Outer Rim. There's like one for each planet. And if you've Mm -hmm. got a couple of people doing these cargo runs, you're going to start seeing the same cards over and over again. You know, fuel always needs to go to, I don't even know where, like Ord Mantell. Like fuel's always a matter (laughs) of pick it up and take it to Ord Mantell. That never changes from game to game. Um, So I just feel like there's there's a definite limited amount of content that you're going to see pretty quickly and fantasy flight knows you're going to want to buy additional stuff for it Uh, yeah and then tom did you do any illegal cargo i don't know if you saw that there's that's another thing yeah so there are rules about cargo there's regular cargo and illegal cargo and and this is something this is a game rule there should be a difference i look at that and i'm like okay well the this cargo is illegal that is legal what's the difference like why would and in firefly you pay you play firefly 
it's very clear. You pick up illegal cargo, you are technically, quote, an outlaw, which means if a patrol hits you, it'll stop you and it'll investigate you. If a, another player has a bounty on an outlaw, they can pick you up. As long as you've got illegal cargo, you're an outlaw. You can look in the rules book to see what that means. It's printed on cards. What does that mean? When you deliver illegal cargo in Outer Rim, it goes to that stupid data bank. You roll a die, and if you miss the die roll, it says, hey, look up card number one. And you're like, what? And it may not be number one. It might be in like four or it, something. It, it is one. But did you notice there's one. like five or six number ones? There's four. There's one for each faction. Oh, there's four. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's the rule is that illegal cargo, if you fail your die roll, you're going to have to do a secondary check based on whether or not you're friendly with that faction. And there's one card for each faction, that, and that's, that's a basic rule. I shouldn't look at illegal cargo and think, okay, if I fail to deliver this, I draw a card one. What does that mean? Well, what that means, and you could leave all these out face up on the board. You know, It just means, are you friendly with the faction that you draw? If so, you're, you're generally going to be able to deliver it. If not, there's going to be a penalty of some sort. So it's just it ties into the faction system, but it doesn't let you know that. It expects you to either be surprised by what card number one is and it, to create this sense of mystery like, ooh, what's going to happen if I deliver the illegal cargo and it doesn't and I miss my die roll? But eventually you realize, oh, that's just the rule is did you – are you friendly with the faction you arbitrarily drew based on which number one card you, you draw? Uh, Tom, Tom mm-hmm. isn't this like a – the to play devil's advocate, isn't this mm-hmm. like a clever way of – offloading some of the rules overhead so that you discover rules as you play the game. It, I mean, it, okay. it, and that's, in that sense, it sounds like a lot of this, you know, even like Seventh Continent stuff, like the, the complexity of the game emerges as you reveal more and more cards from that deck. You know, Hassan, that's a great way to put it. Uh, but when I play Firefly, that's, that's how they're streamlining it from Fireflies. A, there's less content, but B, they force you to discover these rules about things like what does Princess Leia do? What does illegal uh, uh, cargo do? What, what do these different faction reputations do? They force you to discover that instead of printing it in the rulebook. So, Hassan, where you say that's, that's clever, and I, I could definitely see some groups feeling that way, I'm a guy who likes – one of the things I love about board games is I like knowing all the rules. I like all that stuff being available to me. So right. I guess I'm just not the kind of guy who wants rules – who wants to be forced to discover rules. In Seventh Continent, that's the gameplay is exploration and discovery. In Outer Rim, I feel like that's something that players should know when they play. If I'm going to take regular cargo or illegal cargo, I shouldn't be forced to discover what's the difference. Um, right. Right. So, but I get what you're saying, Hassan. That can definitely create, and I think artificially add replay value. Uh, that can create a sense of mystery for, uh, yeah, what's going on in this universe? What cool things am I going to discover? You know, what's Princess Leia going to do when I find her? Uh, and it's and and it just makes, like you guys are alluding to, it just makes the development of expansions totally infinite, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can just slot in cards modules into that decks i think easier in a sense than Mm -hmm. than latching on like a whole new rule book or a whole new set of tokens or whatever right right right. and they you know they could just add duplicate you know 17 cards for more options for when you run into princess leia too right there could be having three different cards i run into when i run into her would be great because then i don't know which scenario it's going to be Oh, I like that, Mike. That hadn't occurred um, to me, yeah. And it's, you know, there's, I forgot to mention, there's these encounter decks for each planet. Wait, real quick, uh, mention, actually, cause, uh, hold yeah. that thought about the encounter decks, because you're now yeah. making me think. Uh, one, one of the things I do like about that is, uh, as far, when, I, when I look at Outer Rim, I don't get the sense that, that Star Wars stuff was left out. 
Like, I, I don't get the sense that, oh, they're obviously saving the Millennium Falcon for an expansion. Or, right. oh, you're, you're going to get Boba Fett in an expansion. Oh, Princess Leia's not. Like, I feel like everything that I know is in there. So what can they do for an expansion? So I bet you're right, Mike, is they can do things like give Princess Leia additional cards. Right, uh, and all it is is more cards with the same number on them, right? Right, so, right. Very good. Yeah. All right, so you're going to talk about the planets. Go ahead. Yeah, so the planets, um, kind of like Arkham Horror, right? Based on where you end up, you have an encounter. Um, and those have a, quite a bit more variety because there's a different deck for each pair of planets. And then there's one deck for if you're out in the middle of nowhere. And those can give you a job. They can give you new cargo. And I think you get a lot of the extra randomized flavor and you know, kind of random events through those decks. I just wish they were also in the character decks. Yeah, and th- those decks too, it, they're, they're small as well, but you're generally not going to be hitting the same planet over and over again necessarily. So, right. yeah. Uh, and I do like too how, to the game's credit, you know, you play Arkham Horror, every time you flip over a, a card for a town location, it's basically going to be, hey, do a skill check. If you pass, get a good thing. If you don't pass, get a bad thing. Mm-hmm. What, what they've done, which is kind of clever with Outer Rim, is sometimes you flip over a planet for a card a card for a planet and it'll say hey do a skill check and if you pass get a good thing if you don't pass a bad thing happens but sometimes you flip it over and it's like a piece of gear you can buy or a cargo you can deliver that you slot under your ship like the different kinds of cards are spread out in different ways like Mm -hmm. you don't always get your cargo delivery missions from that little tiny cargo deck that i mentioned sometimes you get it by visiting a planet and it'll say hey here's this stuff that we need to go to another planet you thought you were just going to get an event, and instead you got a really cool cargo delivery option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the marketplace cards do that. Like sometimes in uh, the the uh, bounty deck, for instance. Uh, that's not. Well, yeah, sometimes in the bounty deck you might get a piece of gear, like handcuffs or whatever. Yep. To, to and I know the, the cargo deck, for example, has uh, smuggling containers. Exactly, right. That's yep. the thing I was thinking of, Mike. Is, yeah, mm-hmm. generally they're all smuggling. They're all like cargo missions, but sometimes you get that smuggling mod to make illegal deliveries easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not a piece of gear you get in the gear deck. That's something that comes up in that uh, that cargo delivery deck. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I'm overall I I enjoyed the game. I like the mechanics. I just need more of it, <laughs> more of the cards and more variety. Uh, how do you feel about the uh, player interaction? So it's a bit limited. There's some uh, bounties you can get essentially on other players. Uh, that's one thing that you can do. There's these cards that uh, sometimes you get it says secret, which means you don't read them out loud. Um, and I had one where I just had to end up on the same uh, spot as another player, and I essentially could steal one of their fame, which is kind of interesting. Yep. Um, I saw one to sabotage their ship, and it's things like that. But they're, you have to kind of find these cards that give you the, the ability to do player interaction. Because by default, you really don't, unless you have a bounty for someone who is a crew member on your opponent's ship. And then they have the option to defend them or just let you come in and get them. Yeah, it really is a matter of there's no player interaction unless you occasionally stumble across it. Uh, yep. Yeah. And and so in that regard, it's very much a race game, I, I sort of feel. Oh, uh, for sure. Because you're just trying racing to 10 uh, Exactly. Points. But yep. a race game with zero catch-up mechanics, which generally that's... that's it, basically, do you like your race games that have the blue shell from Mario Kart, or do you like them without the blue shell? <laughs> this one, you do not have a blue shell in this one. Yeah. <laughs> So my my big question was, um, how does it how does it play solo? Um, Tom, yeah. have you tried it solitaire? Yeah, because that was it, that, that was one of its draws for me. Because in terms of pick up and deliver, I'm pretty happy with Wasteland Express. Like I, that's not mm-hmm. leaving my collection, and I think it's kind of my go to 
multiplayer pick up and deliver game. So this one I was more intrigued by solitaire playability. Yeah, it's not it's terrible as solitaire. So the solitaire game <laughs> is uh, basically, you know, it's a race game. So you you take another player. Uh, and you put him on the board, and he's getting a, a, basically he ignores the rules of the game and gets an arbitrary drip of victory points over time. So it's uh, a clock that you're running against, right. and, and you know that actually doesn't work so bad if you consider. I just want to fly around this. It's a weird. So Mike mentioned that map too. The way the map is laid out, it's literally a long. It's like a long stretch of space highway with two lanes. Right. So <laughs> and, and it's 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 super long. Like if you are at one side of the the board and you get a mission to go to like the other side you're just like screw that i'm never going to get over there so it's it's a weird layout and when you play solitaire if you just want to like flip over cards and and look for convenient things you can deliver or hope that a certain contact is near you yeah you can do that i guess but it's just it's going to arbitrarily shut down at a certain point when the clock for the other player hits 10 victory points and it's pretty Mm -hmm. quick too like it the other player basically gets a, it, it's basically a very abbreviated hey just flip over cards and make stuff happen game yeah, and uh, it's always like you know do the first one of these you can right yeah or do yeah. all these actions kind of thing and there's like i don't know eight or ten cards for this little ai deck exactly exactly and in a far better example of that sort of thing hassan uh so i'm looking at it here i always forget the name of this zia legends of Adrift system the, the name right. is xia that's also a pick up and deliver space game with a modular board you can deliver cargo you can do bounties you can uh, fight pirates all this stuff uh it's very sandboxy, uh, but I think it has in one of the expansions, which okay, I'm not gonna remember this. Something something Ember something. It's got a crazy. It's got an expansion with a crazy name as well, and that adds solitaire play by creating uh, these kind of lively AI ships with each with their own AI that interact with the sandbox in different ways. There's like a pirate AI, there's a merchant AI that messes up the economy, there's a sheriff AI, you can uh, also have like a bounty hunter running around. So it adds more players that work by AI rules they're they're functionally different. They're not trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do, which is what Outer Rim makes the mistake of doing, is that you're supposed to pretend there's another smuggler or bounty hunter doing the same thing the player does, whereas in Zia, the AIs each have agendas, and they're moving around doing things on the board, and it makes the board feel kind of alive. Uh, So as far as a solitaire pick-up-and-deliver space sandbox uh, you have to get Zia, the core game, and then you have to get their crazily named expansion, which they just <laughs> reprinted, by the way. But that would be my suggestion for a solitaire uh, space sandbox pickup and deliver. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, all right. So uh, Outer Rim. Mike, I can't believe you've made me kind of eager for expansions for that. Because <laughs> I do like the idea now That's... of... Is Princess Leia going to be friendly or not now? Yeah. And like I said, I like the core mechanics. I just want to not always have the same things happen every game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I also, by the way, am super disappointed with the faction system for how there's very... Each faction feels like pretty much any other faction. Like, I, I feel like the Empire should feel qualitatively different from the Rebellion, which should feel qualitatively different from the Huts. And basically, in this game, their colors, their suits. Uh, so I maybe that's something that they'll add in an expansion as well, is something to make the factions feel distinct mm-hmm. uh, yeah all right so uh crusader thy will be done outer rim i am now going to talk about 
the most expensive game on this podcast. Uh, costs <laughs> way more than the piddly little things you guys bought. Uh, so I have a love-hate relationship with, with Peterson Games, uh, who started by a fellow named Sandy Peterson, who mm-hmm. basically is the fellow who, next to Lovecraft himself, taught me the most about Lovecraftian mythos and that, that, that whole universe with his Chaosium role-playing game back when i was a kid we played D and that was cool but then we found this really cool freaky horror rpg called call of cthulhu i think that's what it was called it was yep. published by chaosium and, and sandy peterson made that uh sandy peterson went on to work in, in video games some of which i really loved and a few years ago he got into board games with this great big huge miniatures boondoggle called cthulhu wars and boy, do I hate Cthulhu Wars <laughs> for various reasons that I'll mention in a minute. But after Cthulhu Wars, hugely successful, a uh, lot of add-ons uh, released for it. He just recently released something called Glorantha God's War, which is set in, and I didn't even know this was a thing, which is set in this weird RPG fantasy universe called Glorantha, which has also been around even longer than, than uh, Cthulhu right. Wars. Or than, isn't that the... Uh, called isn't that the Pathfinder world? It's not Pathfinder. It's there's a computer game called uh, King of Dragon Pass. Oh, okay. That is the Glorantha universe. Huh. Actually, is Pathfinder Glorantha? I thought it, it starts with a G. I just didn't know if it was the same. You might be. I know Pathfinder is its own gameplay system, but I didn't know it was in the Glorantha. You know what? I don't think it is, Mike. Okay. Because I'm thinking now of the God cards in the Pathfinder Adventure game and the God stuff in. Yeah, I don't think it is, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. But for the, at any rate, it's, it's just a general fantasy universe, uh, I, I think. With the weird exception that one of the races, you know, you get your elves, you get your dwarves. Uh, one of the races is duck people. Like, that's their main claim to fame. <laughs> there's, a, there's a duck race. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's fine. Like, it's kind of, I think they play it as a joke. The, the duck race... So uh, in in God's War, it adds what are called elder races. It's one of the add-ons. And they're little neutral factions. You you draw a few of them based on the the same number of players. You randomly draw neutral factions. And then they sit on the board. And if you want, you can go over there, do a diplomacy action, and now you can recruit their units. Uh, If you befriend, if the duck race appears, and if you befriend the ducks, and if you have a little duck figure in your army, any time you lose a battle, the other player loses some of his resources. And the title for that power is It's Bad Luck to Kill a Duck. Like, they know that the duck things are jokes. (laughs) So you just carry a duck around with you, and that's a disincentive for anyone to attack you because they're going to lose some of their resources. Um, So one of my issues with Cthulhu Wars, uh, I bought Cthulhu Wars as soon as it came out. It's it's Sandy Peterson. It's Lovecraft. I'm totally into this stuff. Uh, And I discovered that what Cthulhu Wars is, and this is also true of Glorantha, it's simply chaos in the old world made to play more accessibly. Uh, it made to play snappier, easier to teach, uh, less hidden asymmetry. Chaos in the old world is, I, I think, Eric Lang's seminal asymmetrical faction game. Where it's, it's a basically, great game. It's a great game, and it holds up, too. But like a lot of asymmetrical faction games, the player has to basically learn... And, and one of the things, too, about Chaos in the Old Worlds, it's four players or nothing. So the player has to learn the basic rules, but then the faction that he's playing, he has to learn that faction's rules. But he furthermore has to learn, know the rules for each of the factions he's playing against. So there's four different games that a player has to learn when he sits down to play 
chaos in the old world. And because chaos in the old world, what so much of it is hidden in each faction's deck of cards, which is the various actions they can do. And if you don't know your faction's deck of cards, you're at a disadvantage. Similarly, if you don't know the other faction's decks of cards, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, and when you first sit down to play it, all this is going to be new to you. Chaos in the old world is a game that is is a you don't actually play until you've learned all of these factions and that can take multiple playthroughs and one of the things that sandy peterson did with cthulhu wars is instead of keeping all that asymmetry kind of hidden in a deck of cards um it's all face up in a few simple upgrades that you can make to your faction and they're just little tiles you know if i'm playing cthulhu i've got six tiles they all give me superpowers, but none of them is in play at the beginning of the game. Instead, I've got a board that has six uh, like achievements for me. And each time I meet one of those achievements, and they're simple things like lose a dude in battle, conquer a territory. Each time I meet one of those objectives, I take one of the six Cthulhu power tiles and I cover the objective. So I'm unlocking as I play these six asymmetrical powers. And they're all face up. I can see what powers... Mike is going to get. I can see what powers Hassan is going to get. Uh, none of it is like hidden, and there's only six of them. Uh, and, and that makes it way more accessible than something like Chaos in the Old World, where you have to play five or six times before you understand the factions. Cthulhu Wars, you play two or three times, you understand the factions. And even mm -hmm. the first time you play, if you want to take the time to look at everybody's board, you're going to know what's out there. It, it's, it's all face up. It's all out there. Uh, it's all on the table. Um, but my problem with Cthulhu Wars is, as far as a Lovecraftian game, I have long since reconciled myself to shooting Shoggoths with a shotgun. And that's what you do <laughs> in most board games and most video games is it's Lovecraftian monsters and you, you just chip away their hit points or you shoot them. or It's all going to come down to that with maybe some sort of a sanity mechanic. And that's like adventure nonsense. And it's basically just taking adventure tropes and settings and set pieces and just dripping Lovecraft flavored stuff over it. And I guess I'm okay with that because there's not much way to do cosmic horror in the context of a board game or, or a video game. So fine, I'm okay with that. But what Cthulhu Wars does with the Lovecraftian mythos is it asks you to imagine, okay, consider all of these elder gods and now imagine they're all gonna fight each other, right. which makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> Why would Cthulhu fight Hastur, who would fight Shubnigurath? They don't fight each other. That's not what Lovecraftian mythos is about. It's about these gods that are just so powerful that they don't care about you. It's about it's a metaphor for feeling insignificant in in the face of the vastness of the universe. Uh, and to to have a game about these things fighting each other the same way that the orcs fight the elves in a fantasy game makes no sense. And it's ridiculous and arbitrary. Uh, and I feel like of all people, Sandy Peterson should know better. Uh, so that's my main issue with Cthulhu Wars. It had some real growing pains in terms of like QA and production values. The first edition of Cthulhu Wars is basically just trash. You're supposed to put stickers on the boards. Some of the boards are just pieces of like thin cardboard with some of the other production values on the miniatures. They're really nice. Uh, they just really had some issues figuring out how to do board gaming when they did Cthulhu Wars. So fast forward now to Glorantha. Uh, first of all, they've got most of those QA issues and production issues. They've, they've ironed that stuff out. Uh, I feel like Glorantha is, is nicely play tested. 
Uh, I feel like I don't have to worry about in two years, they're going to change all the rules for these different factions because they realized, oops, we didn't really test this. Uh, Glorantha feels polished, whereas Cthulhu Wars felt like a first-time board game designer. Mm. But more importantly, Glorantha is about gods in a fantasy universe fighting each other, and that makes way more sense to me. Uh, it makes sense that the god of storms would fight the sun god, who would fight the darkness god, who would fight the chaos god. That makes perfect sense, and it fits in with exactly... It's like Greek mythology. We know that those gods squabble with each other, because those gods are metaphors for human pettiness. Uh, it's like human pettiness writ large. That makes sense. Of course they have wars. It's not cosmic horror. That's you know, it's a completely different kind of thing. Um, so I I just feel like it doesn't feel as arbitrary, and it gives them more room to play with gameplay mechanics. Like I have no idea why Hoster is supposed to do the stuff that Hoster does, why Shubnigurath does the stuff that Shubnigurath does, and Cthulhu Wars. All of it just seems like plastered on with maybe some name that's vaguely themed on the the power. But they they really went to town and did cool thematic stuff with, there's a total of eight different factions in Glorantha, with these eight different factions. And part of that is by creating, not being bound by by someone else's mythos. They've created, there's another thing too, in Cthulhu Wars, the map means nothing. It's just nonsense. It's a nonsense map of the world. There's no reason for this landmass to differ from that landmass to even differ from this ocean or that island. They're just spaces you move around on. Glorantha, all the spaces, they've, they, they brought the map to life with some really cool geography that they built into it that feeds into the mythology. And I just want to explain by telling you about one of the factions. One of the factions, and it's kind of a, it's a base faction, like if you, if you look at these eight factions, some of them are clearly more advanced than the others. Some of them you'll probably want in every game. Uh, and one of the base factions that you'll probably want in every game is the Sun God. And the Sun God ties into the map and the mythology very intricately based on how he is set up. Normally when you play Cthulhu Wars, you start by summoning your monsters, and then you summon your lesser monsters, or your greater monsters, and then you summon your lesser god, and eventually you summon your greater god, and now you've got Cthulhu on the board. Glorantha's kind of the same way. You start out by summoning a mortal soldier, then you can summon your hero, then you can summon a lesser god, eventually you get the prerequisites out there, and now you can summon your greater god. And he's your super powerful unit, it's a big huge mini, it stomps around on the board, it does cool things. The sun god starts with his greater god, which is like a big old sun, in play. He's on the mm. board, because of course, he's the sun. However, he's trapped in hell. So the, surface, the board is just a big old surface world with islands and continents and seas. However, if you go off the board to the north or the south, you move onto a little separate board that's called the sky. And the sky is comprised of a moon and a heavens space. And it's just a little separate board that connects to the north and the south. It's how you can wrap around. And if you are, like, for instance, the hell god can never build buildings up there. Uh, so he can go up there and fight stuff, but he can never build buildings in the heavens. It's off limits for him. Uh, if you go off the map to the west, you go down into another off-separate board called hell. There's inner hell and outer hell. And you, however, you can't just walk out of hell. To walk out of hell, you have to come in from the east side of the board. The idea is it's following the track of the sun. So you, you go off the west side of the board, you're in hell, and you come back in the east side of the board. However, hell has a special rule. You cannot leave hell unless someone with a stronger combat value than you, somebody has a more important unit than you in hell, 
says to you, okay, you can leave hell. And that can be one of your units or it can be someone else's units. But you can't leave hell while you're there unless someone more powerful gives you permission. So the hell faction, by the way, is great at this because they can freely walk in and out and they can release people from hell. They can imprison people in hell. It's this separate off board that people can get stuck in. And so the sun god starts on the map, but he's trapped in hell. So the sun faction starts with his god, but he can't bring it into play until he gets it out of hell. And the sun god faction is built in such a way that he will never have a unit on his side powerful enough to get his god out of hell. He relies on the other factions to do it. So whereas the other factions have to build up their power and then bring their greater god out, the sun faction has to convince another player to help him get his greater god on the board. And his unique powers, his little asymmetrical powers, are ways to give people gifts. Basically tools to use to convince people, hey, would you go let my greater god out of hell? Uh, <laughs> and that's unique to that faction. No other faction has anything like that. No other faction starts with his greater god on the board. No other faction is based on giving gifts to other factions. Uh, so, And there's no counterpart to that in Cthulhu's wars, by the way. A friend of mine who is deeply invested in Cthulhu Wars. She's bought all the expansions. She really likes it. She makes fun of me for how my silly little, oh, it's not Lovecraftian. Uh, she came over and she watched us play Glorantha once uh, with her arms folded the whole time just going, eh, that's just Cthulhu Wars. But the thing is, it's not because there's no analog in Cthulhu Wars for some of the cool asymmetrical faction powers that they have in Glorantha. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's chaos in the old world, simplified, but with... Uh, done right as opposed to the way they sort of fumbled around with uh, Cthulhu Wars. Hmm. Uh, and, and so far, I'm really liking it. We're uh, super early in the process. Uh, you know, We're at this point where we're just playing with a handful of factions so we can all learn them and understand more how they interact. Because ultimately, what a lot of these games come down to is uh, figure out who's in the lead and everybody gang up on that person. Um, right. <laughs> and, and you can't figure out who's in the lead until you understand the game rules and understand how each faction works. Uh, so, Tom, did you play this with a full set of players, four players? So, uh, no. I Well, yeah, yeah, I've played with four players. Okay. Uh, I think it goes to maybe six. It might just stop at five. Uh, I think it's three to six, actually. Uh, so we've played with four, and I feel like something crazy. It starts to get a little too crazy once there are five players. Mm -hmm. uh, just because of the way that the factions are unique. It, it's hard enough to pay attention to your faction and three others. Uh, that I think it just gets exponentially harder as you add more factions that interact in different ways with other factions. But we've had several, uh, we've had several four-player games, uh, and as long as you're not using any of the crazy complex, complex factions, uh, I feel like that's worked out fine for us. Even people, by the way, who are uh, more casual gamers who I wouldn't necessarily drop into Chaos in the Old World, I would totally drop them into Glorantha. Uh, hmm. Because it starts out simple enough, all this asymmetry, which is there from the get-go in Chaos in the Old World, by the way, all this asymmetry folds in over time. So as someone is playing, they announce, oh, hey, guys, I met one of my objectives. I'm now putting this special power into play. Like, it all folds in in the course of playing. Um, so and they're which, pretty one's, what, which one's better, Glorantha or Chaos in the Old World? <laughs> That's a great question that I'm not sure I could answer because they're just different. You know, from a game design perspective, I'd have to say... Uh, chaos in the old world. Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, splashy and accessible, but I'm not convinced that 
Glorantha is splashy and accessible, but it, it involves a lot of player psychology. For instance, that whole thing with the sun, mm -hmm. uh, if you know the game well, you're never going to let the sun out. Because once the sun gets out, they get a huge economic advantage that nobody mm -hmm. else can get. Uh, so I, I feel like yeah. there's a lot of psychology and player interaction built into the splashiness of Glorantha that is smoothed out in the game design in Chaos in the Old World. That, okay. That's what I was going to ask about, is that if there is a danger of the sun god never never escaping, right? I, if I the, think if once if, you... If the players are clever enough and they're like, look, let's just agree never to let that guy out. Like, right. that, would, that would suck, you know? <laughs> and, and that, I think, it, 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 uh, it, Hassan, it depends in our group who's playing the sun god. If it's right. Troy, who's not really good at these games and who's super affable and not very aggressive, yeah, let the sun got out. But if it's our <laughs> friend Kyle, who has a machine computer brain, who can analyze four moves ahead every single thing, and who remembers exactly which cards you've played and drawn and how much money you've spent, if Kyle has the sun god, never, ever let him out of hell. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. Uh, well, I mean, is it about, it's, is it about trying to extract as large a possible favor as you can so that you're like, okay, well, this favor will get me the, the win before he can he I, can get his win. I, I think what Sandy Peterson planned with this, and I, I approve of this because I think in the most part it, it works, uh, is it's a kind of a catch-up mechanic. The hmm. sun is trapped in hell. Whoever is in second, whoever's in first place doesn't want the sun to get out. But whoever is in last place, if he can get an advantage from letting the sun out. He doesn't right. mind if the sun challenges the first place player. So right. whoever's, basically the sun is gonna curry favor with whoever's been whipped the most on, on the right. board. Right, uh, right. So I think that's the idea is it's sort of a catch up mechanic is nobody's gonna help the sun until he or she is losing. And then it's like, well, I'm in last place. I might as well get some benefit that the sun can give me. Fine, let the sun out of hell. Yeah. yeah. It sounds uh, cool. Give, give give another example of one of the factions. Like, what's another sure. um, sort of clever, interesting twist? So there are two, and I approve of this as well. Another way that the map is brought to life is there are two hard-coded events in Glorantha that will always trigger every time you play because they are they are slaved to anybody hitting hitting a certain threshold of victory points. Uh, Glorantha is a game you play till someone hits 35 victory points. Then you play out that phase, count up everybody's victory points, whoever has the most wins. So as soon as someone hits 35, you're just going to finish that phase. But as soon as someone hits 10, something happens. Uh, and then as soon as someone hits, uh, I think it's 20, something else happens. And these are the two hard-coded events. The second hard-coded event is at 20 victory points. From then on, at the end of every turn, and really, a game of Glorantha only lasts maybe five, six, seven turns. And so this is only going to happen three times. But when someone hits 20 victory points, there's going to be a council meeting at the end of every turn. And what that is is basically players voting on who's going to get a dump of victory points. <laughs> and that's a huge catch-up mechanic. However, to control that vote, you have to sacrifice your economic power for the next turn. You have to basically hobble what you can do in the next turn to control how to dole out those victory points. Uh, so if you're in first place and you're close to winning, 
you're basically going to have to sacrifice what you can do in a given turn so that you control how these these crucial last few turns victory points are doled out. And I can see people hating that, by the way, because, again, that's psychology, is how do you mm -hmm. convince people who's winning? How do you convince someone, yeah, go ahead and sacrifice your power so that you control these votes and then give this person that many points and that person that many points? So that's a crazy, hard-coded event that's baked into every single game. Every single game of Chlorantha, the last two or three turns are going to have victory points doled out by vote, which is really weird. The thing that happens at 10 victory points is uh, something called the chaos, or no, the it's a chaos rift opens, and a connection in the middle of the board that goes straight up to the heavens, and I get this idea that it's like a column holding the heavens above the earth. Uh, it's a space that breaks, and you flip over a little tile that's called the spike. And you flip over this tile that's, that's the spike, and now it's no longer in the board, uh, and it's called a chaos rift. And now, at the end of every turn, every player has to throw a unit off the board into the chaos rift. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> vortex. It's sucking things in. And you can throw in something expensive or something cheap. Whatever you discern, you're, you're basically sacrificing things to the chaos rift. Then, everybody's going to take a six-sided die. And they're going to put it on a number and then put their hand over it. They're each bidding, and it's, you're blind to everyone else's bid, and then you simultaneously lift up your hand and show the number. That's the amount of your resources that you're spending to help close this chaos rift. And then based on the cumulative total of the numbers of resources that everyone has spent, you know, blind from knowing what anyone else is spending, and the amount of stuff that got sucked into the vortex, you then check that number uh, to see if the rift closes. And the more stuff that gets sucked in, the more resources that you sacrifice, the more quickly it'll get closed. And it could be open one or two turns. It could be open three turns. And every turn that it's open, everybody's burning resources. Everybody's losing units or buildings into the rift. Uh, it's this weird cooperative mechanic that comes up where we've got to collaborate to close this. So again, if I'm in last place... Yeah, you guys losing resources. I don't care. You're losing unit. Yeah, I don't care. I'm in last place. You guys need to pony up more uh, resources to close this rift because if you want to win the game, it's on you. Mm -hmm. So one of the factions is the Chaos faction, and it is in their interest to keep that rift open. The amount they bid is subtracted from everyone else's bid. Uh, mm -hmm. as far as keeping it open. And they mm -hmm. get special bonuses while it's open. So it's in their best interest when this hard-coded event happens that forces the game into a little brief co-op dynamic, they're the trader mechanic at that point. Like, they're the one that wants to keep that going. Uh, and if they're not in play, by the way, that little chaos rift, that'll close... It'll almost never be open longer than two turns. But if they're in play, there's no telling how long it's going to be open because it's basically <laughs> how long do they want to fight to keep it open? How much mm -hmm. of their resources are they going to spend on the board playing the game normally or keeping this rift open, which is a drain on all the other players? Uh, and, you know, I, we, we don't even play with them because it's sort of like we're not quite ready for a trader mechanic yet. Uh, but that, that's, that's another example of, of a an utterly unique faction that changes the feel of the game. Cool. Uh, yeah. yeah.
So, the, of course, the, the big drawback is this huge, expensive game, enormous miniatures. Uh, one of my issues with Cthulhu Wars was, come on, guys, you could print this as a game with counters for a tenth of the cost. You know, you're just milking this for the, the profit margin of these miniatures. Uh, and that's certainly the same with Glorantha. There's no reason that you couldn't play Glorantha with cardboard tokens. <laughs> but here's what I realized with Glorantha. It is so much easier for me to trick my friends into playing this game with those miniatures. You open that box up and you start fishing out those miniatures, and they are so evocatively sculpted. Like, you look at some of them, and you're like, whoa, what does that do? That's freaky. Uh, so you can pull out these miniatures and just sort of offhandedly say, oh, yeah, that's the sun. He starts in hell every game. Just drop these little evocative bits of, of gameplay and it'll totally make them want to play. This is a super easy game to sell to your group, largely because of how sexy and evocative the miniatures are. So Nice, nice. Uh, all right, so, uh, yeah. So I, think it, it, I think it sounds really cool. I, I, my, my only hesitation towards it, I mean, the cost is one, and mm -hmm. obviously size and how much room it would take, but it's a... Area control is my, you know, it's my favorite genre, but I, it, I, I've got a bunch that I like right now, right? So it would just have to, it would have to compete with the other stuff that we like to get to the table. And like you were sort of saying, like, I think the best area control games are the ones that your group plays over and over to the point where people become super familiar with it. And yeah, then, yeah. then the game elevates to this really exciting strategic thing that every time you sit down and play, it's, it's enormously satisfying. Um, and the, so to me, the, the, the sort of the big obstacle is like, oh, it's a new system we'd have to learn and yeah. sort of invest in, right? Mm -hmm. I definitely get to sense, like, I feel like I've betrayed my copy of Rising Sun and Cyclades and Kemet. Like, I feel like I've betrayed them by right. uh, buying Glorantha. They've all been, they're all like crying and sitting in the back of the closet wondering, <laughs> when do we get a turn? <laughs> Uh, nice. But it does, to its credit, though, because it's so accessible, it's definitely, um, it, it's just creating memorable stories for our group uh, right. as far as these, these broad swaths of gameplay changes that the different factions introduce. Uh, and, you know, the like the, the whole thing of getting the sun out, like everybody remembers in any given game who was playing the sun and how he managed to get himself out of hell. Like that's a gameplay beat that, Every time we've played, like, that's something significant that happens that is worth talking about after the game. Like, oh, you right. shouldn't have let the sun out. Or, oh, if you'd let the sun out earlier, he he might have been able to beat the chaos guy. Uh, like, all of that post-game talk, I feel, Glorantha just lends itself to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. cool. uh, all right, so there you go. There's three games for you guys to all consider. Uh, Crusader, they will be done. Star Wars Outer Rim and Glorantha. Uh... Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Chick. I've been here with Mike Pullman and Hassan Lopez, and we'll be back to talk about more board games in two weeks. Thanks, everyone.